Yeah, our, our daughter Laurel uh, lives in Toronto, as most of you know, and she's been a part, an active part of Mercy City Church uh, since she's been there. It's an evangelical free church, and as you can even see in the picture, um, it's a, a, a little space rented in a strip mall surrounded by high-rise, low-income housing. And uh, the Mercy City Church uh, is registered as an evangelical free church national mission. Not an international, but a mission project right here in Canada. It is a full, it, it's in every way a full church, uh, except for one thing. Uh, because they're, they're right there in the low-income area, uh, it's unlikely they'll ever have the budget to pay for all of their expenses. So they do very good ministry there. Laurel's involved. Um, but with the stricter uh, measures in Ontario, even in Alberta, they haven't been able to open their doors for months and months. And uh, the truth is, is they are they're in danger very quickly of having to close down permanently. And so Laurel has asked if I could ask you if you had anything to contribute to that, um, that would be uh, appreciated on her end. And um, the website is there. If you go mercycitychurch.com slash support, you can donate right there on the webpage. And if that, we also have a box on the back table that says Mercy City Church on it. Um, and just, you know, when we do a free will offering, we expect that to be above and beyond your normal giving to our work here. But if there's any, any extra beyond that, uh, the church where Laurel goes would, would love to be able to keep their doors open uh, so they can continue that ministry there. And um, so that's just there for, for you to consider. I think we'll, we'll take a moment as we look into the book of Acts to pray at this time. So if you would just uh, pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here with us. You have promised your Holy Spirit to us, and uh, it is with gratitude that we receive what you have to give. We trust, Lord, that um, in all of the struggles that we have, both the ones that are unique to us here today in our situation, but the truth is most of the things that we are concerned about uh, are are things we would have been concerned about no matter which year and which situation we found ourselves in. So we pray for the struggles uh, that, that are represented here in this room and at home for, with those watching, the struggles with temptation, the struggles with relationships, the struggles with health, uh, the struggles with, with work and balance in life, uh, and the struggles to truly put you first in our lives. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that that whether it's through this service or, or other things and friendships that we can reach out to one another, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to know the steps ahead uh, through each day. Or we pray for these things because we are people who depend on you and need you for, for each of the things that we do. And we confess that so often we, we look only to our own resources. And this morning we want to, uh, by coming here in the church, together acknowledge to one another that we we reach out to you for your resources at this time we pray in jesus name amen i'm going to start right off with the uh with the the theme or the conclusion i've come to for this morning in the book of acts and it probably is no surprise i suspect most of you could have written this statement with as much confidence and wisdom as i but in the book of Acts, God says, I am on the move across the world. And I want to look at that a little bit this morning, and I want to seek to find a practical application to what, what that grand story in the book of Acts actually means for us today, or at least one way in which we can put it into application. For the key passages, if you're not interested in reading the whole book of Acts as we go through this, I've given you these keys uh, and they are, they are kind of focused on two, two major incidents of the Holy Spirit and then the conclusion of the book at the end in chapter 28. And so uh, you can jot those down if that's something you're interested in. 
obviously with the with the long and complicated narrative story that we have in the book of acts i couldn't possibly cover the entire story in one sunday morning and the story of acts is actually uh, of great importance as you read the other letters and and other writings that are in the new testament and so what i've done uh for your resources is i've I've been recording uh, since before Christmas uh, little chapters that take us through the narrative, and they're up on our website. I'm actually done 15 out of 19, so hopefully this week I'll get it finished. Uh, And so if you want to look at that, if you go to our web page, you can find at the top a little tab called Sermons. You click on that, and then uh, you'll see this tab here. Uh, Click here for, for New Testament reading schedule and to watch the best story ever. And so if you click on that, that takes you here to, to our uh, best story ever page. And if you click on that, uh, that square there, it, it's, it sounds complicated. If you're on the web page, it's, it's just straightforward. Then here you have all of those chapters. They're, they're about 10 to 15 minutes long, and they, they take the narrative. What, what I'm doing there, I, I mean, I'm not doing the research. I'm looking at books of other people who've done the research. But if you take all of the details in the book of Acts, and then if you go through all the other books in the New Testament, wherever a date or an incident or a person or, or a, a story is mentioned, you kind of correlate that together with what's in the book of Acts to figure out when the things mentioned in the letters happened in the narrative in Acts. And then you add together that with the... Um, the extra-biblical uh, literature, archaeology, uh, people in the next uh, couple of hundred years that were close to that time wrote about it, and, you, and scholars put that all together, and you kind of get a full picture of what was happening and when these, these letters were written in the context. So I've done that so that in your own reading, and as we come Sunday to Sunday to each of these New Testament books in the order in which they were written, uh, you can go there on our webpage and listen to the background so you have it in context. I'm not going to tell that whole story every Sunday morning. And one of the main reasons for that is a big chunk of the New Testament was wit- written all at the very end of the story, and some of it even after Acts closes. And so uh, if we were to, to do that, it would be odd on Sunday morning. So I've decided to do that on our webpage and uh, invite you to visit it there and and uh, I think it will increase your ability to understand what God is saying to you in these, in these uh, New Testament books to see it in that context. So today, uh, I want to focus my attention on the transition, both at the beginning of the book of Acts and then at the very end. And so to do that effectively, we understand that Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, And that in his mind, I believe, we'll see today that it was actually seen as one work, one one story, uh, the same story all the way through. Uh, He wrote them at a little bit different times, probably, and then finished later in the book of Acts. But but that's how he presents it to us. So to do that, we turn first to Luke chapter 24. And we read the end of Luke and then the beginning of Acts, and we can see exactly what he's doing in this... um, in this writing. Luke 24:36. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. But the whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened, he asked? Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. As he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. Still they stood there in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. Then he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. Then he said, When I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, 
Yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my Father promised. But stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Then Jesus led them to Bethany and lifted his hands to heaven. He blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. So they worshipped him and then returned to Jerusalem filled with great joy. They spent all their time in the temple praising God. Luke is making it very clear and very evident. There's no mistake about it. His emphasis here is Jesus Christ is real, he's alive, and he still has a body. Uh, there's, a, there's a real emphasis on see the hands, see the feet, touch them. Uh, make sure you understand and know and have no doubt about this fact. It's a very important statement, it's a very, and, and Luke uh, emphasizes that here at the end. In verse 44, Jesus himself says that what he has done and what he is doing is a complete fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. And he summarizes what that is in a few statements. He summarizes that the anointed one, the Messiah, will suffer and be raised from the dead. And that's calling back to the line of David and the promised king in the line of David. And it's important that he's alive and has a body to be a king to fulfill that reality. Uh, it's not just some fantasy mystical thing going on. There's a real person that is fulfilling what was prophesied. He, he says that his resurrection, his death and resurrection fulfills the Old Testament in that it brings repentance and forgiveness of sins for all nations. And that goes all the way back to the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him and his seed. And so it's all being fulfilled here. And then he says uh, that his followers are to be witnesses who will be sent clothes from on high. And that's kind of where it ends. He opens their minds to understand this, to, to see the Old Testament in this new light and understand it in all of its fullness in light of the fact that there is an actual risen Savior standing before them. And then he sends into heaven. It's not enough just to rise from the dead, but he needs to go and be seated at the right hand of God to be the king of his kingdom, which is the kingdom of heaven, both in heaven and on earth, in order to fulfill up fill up all of the prophecies and promises and realities that God wants to bring into, um, into our experience. But it's a cliffhanger. He tells them things are going to happen, and then he just leaves them hanging there. They haven't happened yet. And if you, if you read Luke and don't come to the end of it and think, oh, wait a minute, this story isn't over. I wonder if next year the author is going to publish the next version in the series... Uh, you'd be having the right reaction. Uh, he leaves it in a, in a cliffhanger. These promises have been made. Stay in Jerusalem. Something's going to happen. You're going to be clothed from on high. We're not really quite sure what that means or how that will come about, uh, but we can hardly wait till the next chapter. And the next chapter comes to us in the first chapter of the book of Acts. So if we read these verses, we can see that there's a significant amount of overlap. Uh, as happens when you get the next, uh, the next edition in a book series. Uh, you first begin with a brief overview. The overview highlights some things from the previous and adds some detail to bring it into the new, new story. And that's what we have here in Acts chapter 1. Having just read Luke at the end, chapter 24, listen to God's words here. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach. And that word's important. He began to do it. He's not finished yet. The story's not over in Luke. Everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the, through the Holy Spirit. 
During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eaten with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, he kept asking them, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So this is so easy, I'm going to use flannel graph to illustrate. This is Sunday school material. He repeats what he said at the end of Luke, at the beginning of Acts, to tell us with complete certainty that this is now going to be the continuation of the same story. The The ending of Luke is the beginning of Acts, and then he adds some edits and advances more of the story, adds more detail to what he wrote about in the end of Luke. And, uh, and then he comes to, uh, to verse 8, the things promised before the Holy Spirit. It's very important to notice this. It's very important to pay attention here. Because the story's on pause when Jesus goes up into heaven to take up his throne, his rulership of his kingdom. And it can't start until the Holy Spirit comes. So when you read the book of Acts, you're often tempted to think of it as the, and and even the name that we give it is the Acts of the Apostles. The story of the people who were with Jesus, what they did after he was gone. But that's not how Luke presents it to us. He's presenting, I think, with absolute clarity. The story doesn't pick up again. You have to wait for something. It's not the story of what people do. It's a continuation of the story of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, which is what God does when he's embodied on earth. When God comes to earth in a body, in Jesus Christ, he does all of these things. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, God is once again embodied on earth. Not completely in any one of us, but in his church the body of Jesus Christ is present on earth. He directs it from his throne in heaven. He's the king, he's the Lord, he's the leader, but you can't be the body of Christ on earth until the Holy Spirit comes, until you've got the right clothes. You have to wait. The story's on pause until it continues. In Acts chapter 2, we have the description of how that happens, and it's probably familiar to you. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other language as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So now, the story can continue. Take off the pause button, go back to play. We're going to hear the story of what God does on earth when he indwells a people. 
who become his expression, his feet, his hands, his wounded feet and hands on earth. Now, no one of us, Jesus could fully embody God's presence on earth. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was the Son of God and the Son of Man. None of us can do that. None of us can fully uh, fill that out. But he gives his Holy Spirit to the church as a group, as a whole, as a body. And he, he builds it up from that per- perspective and gives us the task and the ability to continue his story, not our story. And that's the story that if you read Acts with that idea in mind, you read it differently. It's not the story of what people did. It's the story of how God becomes present in actual bodies on earth and how that spreads out then across the world as uh, it's described there. God is now incarnate in the indwelling spirit of 120 people in an upper room. Jesus has returned to earth. And Luke is going to tell us the story of what Jesus does on earth throughout the book of Acts through people just like us. Peter, in his address to the crowds at that moment, tells us all about it. I'm not going to read the entirety of his sermon, just the conclusion, uh, but the conclusion kind of tells us what he was explaining and arguing towards. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. He's explaining how a person would enter into these things that God is doing on earth, beginning with Abraham and the promise, right up until today. He, he says that. He says it's for you. That's the people he was speaking to in Jerusalem. It's for your children and those far away. And we could translate that. This promise, Peter says, is for you, for your children, and for those in Wainwright. That would be an accurate translation. We're far away in time and in space. But it's for us, this message. And the message is simple. Each of you must repent of your sins, turn to God, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and the story of what God is doing indwelt in in a body on this earth can continue. It's not a story about me and you. The church in Wainwright is a story about what God is doing embodied on earth. And that's what's required. That's how you enter the story. Why do we need to repent and be baptized? Because it's not my story. I have to repent from all the things I've been trying to achieve in this world and say, no, Jesus is my king. I'm going to try to achieve the things he is doing in this world. That's what my life's about now. But I can't do that unless I have the Holy Spirit because it's not what I'm doing. It's what God's doing. So God, through the Holy Spirit, in humble people who get on their knees and repent and say, God, your wisdom is better than my wisdom. Your rule is better than my rule. Your plan for my life and this world is better than my plan. I trust that you love me. I trust that you have in mind what's best for me. I trust that even if I don't understand what's happening around me, you understand what's happening around me and what you're leading us towards. That's what it means to repent and make Jesus king. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, comes and Peter says here, and then the story of God indwelt among his people continues. It's described as the family of God, as the body of Christ, as a building made up of living stones. Um, That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? 
each person who repents and receives the Holy Spirit becomes a living stone, which God, not us, God builds into a temple. And a temple is a place where the people around look with, with gratitude and excitement. Oh, I see, there's a place in Wainwright where we can come to meet God. It's not a geographical place. It's not a building made of logs. It's among the people who are the living stones and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, the actual embodiment of God on earth in actual real bodies that you can touch and feel and that you can give them a piece of fish and they can eat it. That's what we're talking about here in the book of Acts. The story, not a new story, not a different story, the same story that was in the book of Luke. Of what happens, what does God do when he comes in bodily form on the earth? And then in Acts, that story just continues. Only now it's in the hands and feet of many people and dwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the story in the book of Acts goes through a number of stages. It begins in Jerusalem, just as Jesus said it was. In chapter 2 through 7, tell, talk about what God does in and around Jerusalem through the Holy Spirit indwelling his people. And then in chapter 8 to 12 of the book of Acts, it moves out to Samaria and Judea, uh, the greater Palestinian region at that time, uh, what God does there. And in that second part, chapters 8 to 12, we have a new thing happen, and that is illustrated and told to us in the story of Cornelius and Peter, where Peter goes to the house and household of a Gentile, and the Holy Spirit comes for a second time in a similar fashion, illustrating, making it very clear to them and to us that this indwelling of God is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the rest of the world. And so we have that two times message. This is something special. God is coming to indwell his people, the Jews first and then the Gentiles. And then in chapter 13 to 28, uh, this message, this story of God moving across the world uh, goes out from Judea and Samaria and into the rest of the world. And uh, Luke brings it to a conclusion in Acts chapter 28, verse, 30, verse 28 to 31 with these words. So I want you to know that this salvation from God has also been offered to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. For the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. And that's the end of Acts. And I think maybe if we, we need to do a little bit of historical study to understand why Luke ends Acts at that point because the story of course continues but he ends it there I believe because in his mind that is in Luke's mind and in the minds of people alive at that time Rome was the center of the universe Rome was the center of the world and if the gospel is established in Rome and if the kingdom of God comes there and is there with no one trying to hinder it no one trying to stop it then that's enough evidence to say it's going to spread everywhere. There's no stopping it now. It can't be stamped out. It's reached the center of the universe. It's reached the center of the world. And we can see that it's going out from there to all places. Every, people from everywhere in the Roman Empire visited Rome. And when they were there, there was a rumor about, there's this new thing, you should go to the house where Paul is under house arrest, and hear him explain it. And many believed and then they took it with them throughout the extent of the Roman Empire. Now we know that the Roman Empire eventually fell and the, the gospel continued to be brought across the world by other means and other methods. But in Luke's mind, and I think it's easy to understand, he ends the story there and says, okay, we, that's enough. We don't have to keep going because now we know. Uh, Jesus came to Bethlehem, God embodying on earth. And Bethlehem is kind of a place where the Old Testament story visits again and again and again, uh, whether it's through, through Jacob or the, just that's the place where all these different things happen. Uh, it's the most, uh, it's kind of the central locale uh, around which the stories of the Old Testament circle. 
Jesus came there. God embodied on earth. And then from Bethlehem, Luke traces the story from Bethlehem in great detail to Jerusalem and the resurrection. And then in Acts, he traces it from Jerusalem out across Judea and Samaria. And then from there out across the Gentile world till it gets to Rome. And now we know this message, this reality of God embodied on earth is not going to stop. It's going to keep going. I don't think that's really news to most of you. Uh, Maybe put in a little bit different words than you've heard before, maybe not. But what does it mean? How does it impact? I mean, it's interesting. It's, oh yeah, I see that, I believe that. But what what does it do for our lives today? Uh, I'm moving across the world, God says. Yeah, move God, move faster. There's many more people to reach. But if we're honest, and I think we are, we have to admit that it's not moving very fast in Wainwright. It's not moving very fast in Alberta. It's not moving very fast across Canada. And in fact, it's not moving very fast across the English-speaking Western world. There's other places. We hear stories. We meet people from Iran and from China and from uh, South America and, and other places where it's moving very quickly. The, embodied dwell, uh, the embodiment of Jesus Christ in His church is on the move around the world. Uh, why not here? What's going on here? I want to just really quickly tell you a story from the Old Testament that I think might help us understand uh, What's going on here? Maybe, maybe not. It's, it's helping me to understand as I ask this question because I don't have all the answers to this question. Uh, some of it might just simply be that God decides where he moves and where he doesn't and uh, we accept what he does. But I think there's something to look at here. It's a gruesome story. So I'm going to edit out the worst parts uh, for public consumption here. But it's in 2 Kings chapter 6. And it's a story of when a king named Ben-Hadad of Aram brings his army together and comes to Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he surrounds the city of Samaria and puts it under siege. Now, siege warfare doesn't happen anymore because we have weapons that can break through any siege. But in those days, that was common. And it's probably the most brutal form of war that can be engaged in. Because it's a waiting game. You simply circle the city and sit there and wait. With your supply chains coming to your army, nothing getting in and out of the city. And eventually, the people inside the city will destroy one another. Some will say, we're starving to death, uh, put up the white flag and go out and take whatever they're going to give us. And others will say, we're going to die within these walls, we will never surrender. And eventually, the people inside the city become enemies of one another and destroy themselves. And then you just walk in and take the city. But in the meantime, people starve, people suffer. They eat each other both figuratively and literally. And it's horrific. That's what was happening in Samaria. The king was completely um, without recourse. He couldn't bring the people together. He had no ideas about what to do. He didn't have any outside alliances that could come and help them. It was a devastating situation. And he was being uh, ridiculed by the people on the streets as he walked along the walls of the city. And he got angry. And he said, I'm going to, I can't, whatever God is doing to me, I can't kill God. But I can go and find God's prophet and kill God's prophet. That will at least give me some satisfaction. So he goes and finds Elisha the prophet. Elisha must have had a strong door because he bolted the door and the king couldn't get in. And Elisha said through the door, uh, well, let's just back up a bit. What Elisha said doesn't make sense unless you know one detail I forgot to tell you. It says that during the siege, 
It lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a cup of dove's dung sold for five pieces of silver. So people were so hungry that they would buy a cup of dove's dung with the rest of their life savings just to have something. Desperate situation. Elisha says to the king, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the Lord says. By this time tomorrow in the markets of Samaria, six quarts of choice flour will cost only one piece of silver and 20 quarts of barley grain will cost only one piece of silver. And the people in the city mocked him. They could not imagine how that could possibly be true. They didn't believe it. But what they didn't know is that at the same time as this was going on inside the city, something was going on outside the city. God put into every ear of every soldier surrounding the city the sound of a thousand chariots from Egypt. Egypt was the only world power at that time that could actually swoop in and overtake a situation like that. So when the army of Aram believed that the Egyptian army was swooping down upon them, they left their cooking fires with the food still cooking on the fire and ran. They left their jewels, they left their clothes, they left their beds, they left their swords, they left their jewel-encrusted thrones, they left everything where it was and they simply ran. And as they ran for the Jordan to get across back to their own homeland, they took off their armor, they took off their boots, they took off their helmets and just left them strewn along the road so that they could run faster. And they ran across the Jordan back home with their tail between their legs. And the people inside Jerusalem didn't realize that God had already saved them. No one inside Jerusalem had to lift the finger But they were already saved. It had been provided. All they had to do was believe it and go out and receive it. But they didn't. They they were stuck inside the city, uh, living the way they'd always lived, even though they had been saved. There were four lepers outside the wall. They were stuck between. No one would let them in the city during the siege, And of course, they weren't going to go into the enemy army and be killed there. So they were stuck, huddled up against the walls, hoping they could survive. They too were starving, had nothing to eat, were about to die. And so they thought to themselves, if we go down to the enemy camp surrounding the city, maybe we can steal some food. In fact, if we get caught stealing the food and the soldiers kill us, that'll be better than starving to death anyways. We're going to die either way. So they went down into the enemy camp and they found hot food on the fire, ready to eat. They found, they found wine and they found clothes and they found jewels and they found all this stuff and they ate their fill and they drank their fill. They filled their arms with as many fine clothes and treasures as they could find and went up into the hills and buried it in the ground so that they could live off that for the next year's. And then they came back to the enemy camp and were laying on the comfortable beds like kings. And they said to one another, you know, maybe we're being a little selfish. Maybe we should let the people in the city know. I mean, the people in the city weren't willing to help us before, but, you know, we've already hid away enough for ourselves. Maybe, maybe we should go let them know. They went and knocked on the door of the the gates of the city and the guards asked, what do you want? They said, the enemies are gone. There's lots of food out here. Everyone thought it was a trap. Don't you dare go out there. The the enemy soldiers have just hid behind the hill and as soon as we come out, they're going to charge out and, and into the city. They know we're desperate enough to come out and so don't you dare. God had already saved them, but they were still living as though they had not been saved. They wouldn't believe it. It was true. It was real. It was in their hands. It wasn't a long time in this case. It was only a night. The king sent out uh, a chariot to check out the situation. The chariot went through the camp beyond the hills. Nope. The enemies have left their, their trail across the Jordan. Evidence that they've just ran. 
And so they open the gates of the city, and the people come out, and they eat the food, and they gather the treasures. And indeed, by this time the next day, a quart of choice flour was selling for a piece of silver. Everyone had enough. And I think that's a little bit like the way we live as Christians. God's done everything. We haven't had to lift a finger to save ourselves. We just have to believe it. And then we just have to go out and receive it and accept it and live in its reality. But we're kind of still behind the city walls in our misery thinking, ah, I hope Jesus comes back soon and brings us all home where we can have the blessings. And they're just outside the blessings. But we live as though it's not real. In Acts, God says, I'm on the move across the world. And I'm moving through the men and women and children who receive the Holy Spirit and become my indwelling presence on earth. And I think sometimes we don't want to give up our wisdom and our goals and our priorities. We want to stay inside the city walls and win the fight with our neighbor instead of go out and experience the blessings. Go out and pick up the resources that God has for us. I showed you this picture um, when I was talking about current affairs, a little picture of what God's doing on the earth, and I thought it would be worth bringing up here again today. So if you remember, on the earth we have... um, Oops. On the earth here... I think I got the wrong color highlighted. There we go. On the earth here, in the kingdoms of this world, and sometimes the kingdoms are as small as between a brother and a sister, everyone's fighting. Everyone's picking sides and trying to marshal resources to win. And there's discord and there's imbalance and there's sin and there's evil. And it just goes on and on and on. And God's solution to this problem is that he takes from heaven and plants a seed on earth, a seed of his kingdom. He sends Jesus to live in a body on this earth to show us exactly what it looks like to live, as it were in my illustration, with the resources that are outside the city walls. What does that look like? Well, look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. What does it look like? What are the priorities? What are the things that motivate? What are the things that are rejected? What's accepted? What does it look like to live according to the kingdom of heaven on this earth, to embody God's presence? Well, Jesus is that. And then Luke shows us that when Jesus returns to heaven, it's not to leave us abandoned, but it's to send his Holy Spirit to indwell a people who will be his body on earth. The kingdom of God still expanding, still going across the world on earth. And I think what we do, I mean that's how, that's how Ephesians describes it, as, the, uh, as uh, the Holy Spirit is the deposit of heaven among the believers. I think we, we use what, I've never heard this before, but I'm going to call it Christmas tree theology. Can we think about a little bit of Christmas this morning? Christmas tree theology. So let's say we have, uh, we have uh, struggles with leadership in our church. So we go out, look around the world, and we find the best leadership strategies and training programs we possibly can. It's like a tree. We find the best one. Then we cut it off 
and we bring it into the church, and then we hang Bible verses and spiritual decorations on it, and we expect it to give us life. But it dies. Instead, we should look to the source above and realize that we don't need a king. We already have one. And that king says every believer, the eldest elder or the sinniest sinner, should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we look to our king, our leader, we're on the same level. But we look to him. And he comes among us through his Holy Spirit. And he teaches us how to love one another. And it's like a seed planted in the earth. And we wish it would grow faster. So we go out in the world and find a tree and bring it in. But it dies because it's detached from the root. And we don't want that root in the church anyways. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses we hang on it. We try to do grand things when he's simply saying, love the other person. Be like Jesus, who who spent time with the most holy Sadducees and Pharisees and spent time with the most unholy prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Jesus treated them all the same. They were level. He loved them all. He loves us all. That seed, if we let it grow, if we put aside our strategies and our plans and our desire to win over the other people, it will grow. It will grow. And it will become the presence of God on earth among us. A tree that gives holy shade all across Wainwright. A temple made out of living stones that the people of rain will look at and say, I see among those people I can meet God. It's not the same. They don't have among them the fighting and the bickering and the blaming each other for their problems and all the stuff that the world all around us gives us over and over again. It's different there among those people. But we live as though we're still under siege and there's no resources. Or we go out into the world and we look for the best psychologist that's written the best-selling books to tell us how to, have a, how to raise our children and, and be a good, have a good marriage and we, we find the best one we can find and we cut it off and we bring it inside the church and we hang Bible verses on it and make it look all pretty and religious-like and, and then we wonder why it dies. And our marriages die with it. Because you won't find out there in the world a single piece of advice that says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Be willing to die for her even before she does a single thing for you. You won't find out there in the world the kind of advice that says, Wives, respect your husbands even if they're not worthy of respect. Just like God saved the people before they lifted a finger from inside the wall. All they had to go out do was go out and believe and receive. You won't, find, you won't import that from the world. But that's the seed of the Holy Spirit in your relationship. And we can only accept that seed if we do just what Peter said. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Repent of all your strategies, all your plans, all the things you've picked up from the world that the world says are wise. Repent of all your sins and turn to God and say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm going to live His way. I'm going to take His direction even if everyone around me says it's foolish. God says he takes the foolish things of this world and makes them wise. 
He takes the last things and makes them first. You have to die before you can truly live. That's the seed. It's small. It doesn't make a splash in this world. But it's from heaven. And you can't kill something that comes from heaven. And if you water it with the, with the water of your knees in prayer, if you fertilize it with the fellowship of other believers who have made this commitment, if you fill it up with a consistent diet of the word of God and worship, it will grow. You probably won't notice it for a long time that it's even growing at all. Because that's how Jesus said the kingdom of God works. But then one day, you're thrown into a fire and you don't burn. You're thrown into a trial, a conflict, a problem. And the people around you think you're going to fail. Because no person could withstand that pressure. But the kingdom has grown up strong inside you. And your marriage doesn't fall apart. And your church continues to love one another. And they see that and they say, that doesn't make sense unless it's supernatural. Because it doesn't. And the people will say, we want some of that. As Acts uh, concludes with those words, He boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God and the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and no one tried to stop him. Started as a little seed. Read the book of Acts, the story of the Apostle Paul and it grew into a mighty tree. In the book of Acts, God says, I'm moving across the world. Is he moving across my life and across your life? Have we got the attitude, the correct attitude of repentance? So that we can go out from the little ugly camp we've made of our lives and receive the rich blessings of the Holy Spirit and actually become the embodied presence of God on this earth. Because that's the story that Acts tells us. Jennifer, would you close our service in prayer? I'm just going to close with uh, the end of Psalm 31. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Be strong and take heart, all you who hope in the Lord. You are dismissed.